Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. So this stage, we've got some breaking news. Joining us uh, from uh, over the pond is our good friend, Nigel Burden from RailsBank. Nigel's been on the show numerous times in various guises, actually, but it's great to welcome him back. And Nigel, uh, how are things going? Good, thanks. Uh, it's uh, much appreciated being invited back again. Uh, we're, we're oh, it's always, great to have you on. We've uh, obviously met each other in places like in the middle of the mountains of Maribel on yes. podcast and various other places. And in Paris at the FinTech Forum. Yep. And, yeah, absolutely. Now, you guys have just uh, you just had a new press release. Uh, Rouse Bank has obviously been doing very well. You've had some good raises recently and um, you know, you've uh, had some great press. But um, one of the things... You know, we've talked about on the show and I wrote about in, in Bank 4.0 is this concept of embedded finance. And this has now become really central to what you're doing at Rails Bank. You just you just uh, you were just at Web Summit. So tell us a little bit more about your embedded finance uh, model that you've embedded now in, in sort of the Rails Bank platform. Sure, we've, we've been doing a lot of thinking uh, spurred on by people like yourselves uh, and others in the industry about uh what really is finance? Uh, because people don't wake up and say, I want to buy fintech. I want to buy issuer processing. I want to, to buy a loan. People wake up and say, I want to buy a car. Yeah. And buying the car is an experience uh, for somebody. And the experience can be pretty awful where when it comes to the financing piece, you can wait two or three hours to go through paperwork and things. But imagine if uh, you're able to buy the car choose the car, buy the car within literally 40 seconds, including all the financing. So we see that that world of uh, that consumers want to have an amazing experience around something and embed the finance into it so it's seamless. And right. our customers, we provide them the tools to do that. So we've really started thinking away from being sort of the world of fintech very much into the way of giving tools and capabilities to our customers to create what we call embedded finance experiences embedded into their existing uh, customer journey, their customer experience, whether it's buying a car, buying television, fixing a car, uh, attending a, a concert, going to see a sports, uh, your, your favorite team play, or, or looking at something like Formula One racing, for example. Those are all things people get excited about. And if they're excited about and putting finance at the point they're excited about, you're bringing finance to them as opposed to forcing them to go to finance and the bank. So everything comes much more consumer-centric rather than uh, bank-centric. So we sort of see the shift, and it's a bit strapliney. so apologies about this. But no, no, that's all right. But, but it's not – so here's the complexity of this, of course, is that 
it's not just someone going into an app and asking for a credit facility because this is the way you know yeah. um, this is the way mobile has been adapted to the sort of traditional products and there has been some like with buy now pay later as an example we see some contextualization mm-hmm. of credit but you're talking about sort of much more extensive embedded nature of finance so how are you enlisting the support of the formula one guys the sports teams and everything at the point where this is going to be embedded the the, the way we we express it is uh if you are able to engage with the fans who aren't in the stadium because one of the things biggest issues with uh with uh the sports is they make a lot of money in the stadium and they make some money as well for merchandising outside. If you continue to engage with uh, your, your fan on a daily basis, uh, that's a good thing for you and you get an understanding of deeper and they can do more offers and you can uh, bring them in and get more, uh, more loyalty. And because uh, we've also got the concept, because uh, you're a fan, you're unlikely to default on, say, Manchester United because uh, that, if Manchester United saying you're a, a bad uh, loan person would be worse than the bank saying that, for, if you say what I mean, there's an right, right. attachment. So the, the, it's really, uh, and, and previously in, in, in the world of what we call big finance uh, uh, or old finance is you had to drop out into somebody else's customer experience. And because you go to somebody else's customer experience, you know, all the loyalty, all the amazing uh, journeys you've developed for your consumer or your fan, you suddenly drop out into something that is back in uh, the sort of like uh, 20, 19th, 20th century. And ergo, you lose a lot of credibility with, with, with your fan. So it's, it's, it's giving them the tools, letting us take away all the problems of finance, regulation, operations and everything and because we're vertically integrated from the consumer directly into the central bank or the payment schemes we can manage all that risk ourselves there's no legacy in there it allows uh, the the sports brand to give an amazing experience that they would expect because they're totally integrated into their their own capabilities to the consumer and therefore finance doesn't become frightening finance becomes an enabler and a loyalty capability so, I mean, this also allows you to be a little bit more flexible with design. So, you know, I mean, in terms of that thinking as a bank, because you now, you know, are, you know, you're both a marketplace and obviously, uh, you know, a, a bank platform, but um, how, how does that change the way you think about credit access? It's it's not it's not like a credit card that's embedded in the McLaren or Manchester U website, is it? What you know what what is the credit experience specifically that the customer is getting? Sure, the, 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 there is the concept of credit. This uh, is a basic credit card, but there's a, the experience of credit to buy tickets to the next Formula One race, uh, for example. And, and the way we look at uh, the credit is uh, if you decouple credit from the mechanism it's used, like credit card is yep. just a, a revolver loan attached to a card. Uh, we look at the, the, the way that can the brand deploy its own balance sheet along with right. our balance sheet and a third party bank balance sheet, because I'm still a massive believer in banks and in that, in that area. And because we have a capital markets business built at the back end of Wales Bank. Can we bring all those things together so everybody can profit from the credit and also benefit the consumer? So they're, they're borrowing from somebody they trust. The banks are also, again, say, on the senior side of the, of the credit relationship. 
and you get a point where everybody wins. So beforehand, the economics of providing finance, even if you're a massive brand to the consumer, you only got about 5 to 10%, if that, something's more under 5%. But if you're able to embed it and bring more control of it, which we do give to the, to the brand, your economics are getting about 50% of the upsides or, or more. And so it, it changes the economics fundamentally. And I think, if I remember rightly, and John Lewis and, and the other major brands, the amount they took out of the, the relationship with their financial products was absolutely minimal. It's more like a stickiness product than a yeah. real revenue generator. And that's, that's a shift we, we, make, we make happen. So if, um, if I'm a fintech listening to this, if, uh, if it's a sports team or a, um, you know, a merchant that's looking at this, how can they find out more information about this initiative that, from RailsBank? Sure. Go to our website. You can see our, our new brand, which was launched uh, last Tuesday. And uh, we're super proud of that. Thank you. <laughs> it's a lot of work went into it. It's very, very proud of it. And uh, so www.railsbank.com or find us on LinkedIn. You can connect to us there. Or if you want to just contact me directly, Nigel Verdon. I'm the only Nigel Verdon on LinkedIn as far as I'm aware at the moment. Fantastic. And we're delighted to chat. Great. Well, Nigel, thanks for joining us from RailsBank. It's always good to hear what you guys are up to and giving us an update and all the best. We'll, uh, I guess we'll hear some more uh, uh, early next year, hopefully, on the progress. Yeah, thank you, Brett. And uh, always delighted to, to chat with you. Thank you. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom-tailored for your situation and your team to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. Well, David Ryling joins us now. He is the CEO of Sunrise Banks and the host of uh, the Next Gen Banker here on Provoke.fm. Um, we've had David on the show before, and when David, we certainly can talk about Sunrise Bank. Uh, uh, bill yourself as the world's most socially responsible bank. Yeah. Um, but we're here at Money 2020, so good to see you here. And we were just talking. You've brought five people, so for uh, about a $2 billion bank, uh, I was surprised. I, I suggested that you probably have more people here for a bank your size than anybody. And you told me that that was down. You normally bring 10 people. Yeah. This conference for us, which um, it took a few years uh, for me to learn at least, half of the conference is people with badges and the other half are the people who are in suites and just meeting with people constantly. Right. And so uh, while it might have, we might be uh, slow learners, we, we picked up on that and Usually half of our staff are, are meeting with clients and prospects in a suite just on the hour, every hour for three or four days. And uh, the other half were combing for new ideas and new partners and, and meeting with people. Well, we're still on the first day, um, so you haven't seen everything yet. But 
what are you looking for? Why, why are you here? And, why, and you come every year, yep. right, or last several years at least, uh, and you bring a team. What, what, what's your purpose for being here? What, what are you looking for? Yeah, so for me personally, I'm, I'm like uh, Sherlock Holmes out there. I'm just looking for the little nuggets and the trends um, that I see on the floor, in the conversations, talking with customers and prospects. And, you know, this year after just a, maybe a half a day or a little bit more, you know, banking as a service, certainly coming to the top, certainly can't miss the crypto um, as Nidig is, you know, a lead sponsor and making a big splash. Right. Um, you know, I, I've seen real-time payments is, is also uh, companies that I don't recognize the brands, but every time I go up and talk, oh, we're into real-time payments, money movement, that's what we do. Right. So it's kind of interesting to see them. And then these, I would say identity is still in the, in the top list of, of companies that are here. Yeah, we still haven't solved that one yet, have no, we? No, we haven't. Yeah. We haven't solved real time data either. Yeah, that's but, true. Yeah. And there's, you know, I had data privacy and all that as well, but. Yeah. Well, Sherlock, thanks for leaving your pipe outside of the media. <laughs> well, you know, no here, smoking. But, yeah. Well, I, I will tell you, though, this is the second meeting today already where we are talking about corporate responsibility, believe yeah. it or not. Sure. Um, I, I do think that is starting to um, work its way into the conversation, I think, slowly. Um, and and so of those areas or other areas you're looking yeah. for, um, you know, that's always a running theme for you and everything that you do. Um, I mean, any, anything that stuck out to you so far or you're hoping to learn more about? You know, the um, I see maybe a little bit more of the signs, kind of the diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, right. It, particularly with stage presence, and I think that's intentional with the Money 2020 um, uh, group, and so that's good to see. Um, I did see a, a panel or two on crypto being inclusionary, and at least the discussion around that. Um, so I'm kind of interested as to how that gets approached. Um, and I do think that at a lot of the heart of the, the fintechs that are out there, there really is a sense of, um, and maybe it is money motivated, but the fact is, how do we reach markets that haven't been reached before? Who's been excluded? How do we crack the nut, make banking, if you will, or financial services or payments or however you want to think about that, more inclusive to more people and make it accessible, easy, convenient, and, and fairly priced? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think I've sensed more... At least talk. I'll, I'll reserve my judgment on whether the action's there or not Good yet. Point. But at, at least talk around inclusion. And not just um, financial inclusion, but I, I would say kind of beyond the mainstream of just consumer payments, um, sure. too, right? We, we were talking to a couple of folks who are um, working in the, the small business or the commercial space and some around the trust and estates sure. uh, space. And, and I think that's interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I said this earlier, I, I think we're still pretty early in the consumer fintech um, revolution, but it's been around for a while now. It's yep. maturing. I think we're in the very early stages in some of the other parts around the business. That's something you think about, too, and not, you know, not just how do we reach you know, more diverse set of customers, uh, but, but different use cases and, and, and different markets? Yeah, definitely. As a matter of fact, there's two things that stick out <laughs> in my mind there. Um, one is... Uh, I had a conversation this morning uh, with a regulator of of all things on whether um, you know the financing uh, a transaction at point of sale is that a good thing is that a bad thing um, and the fact is is that I think there could be both 
I think there could be a niche there in which, you know, financing that transaction at the point of sale, three monthly installments, that sort of thing, can be a very inclusionary and a very responsibly structured product to match the credit terms with the whatever they're purchasing. Right. Um, but I think there's also a lot of room for abuse in that particular case in terms of overcharging. Um, so there's a business case that I think is still um, out for a little bit of judgment. And it'll be interesting to see where regulation ultimately comes down on that. Well, I, I think the whole buy now, pay later space in, in various flavors is super interesting because I think most of us embedded in this industry thought there wasn't really a need there. Totally. Right? Yeah. You have a credit card and you maybe have a personal line or an equity line and you have cash and there's lots of ways to pay for this. Right. And boy, you know, where we you know, well, the wise tax and the, the firms and others of the yep. world that have, have really said, no, there's a need for people to finance um, these things a little bit at a time. I was talking to somebody earlier that said they. Uh, I had to check my calendar when he told me this. He said we're they're working on a credit card based payment that's tied to a home equity line. I'm like, oh. and and my reaction was the same as yours. There, that could be good or bad. Sure, exactly. Right. With that easily accessible into your home equity, the compliance around that's got to be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think the angle. I I, I don't want to say too much. I don't know where the company yeah. is or what their stage is, but. I, I think the angle they were trying to, I think they were trying to carve out a new niche of, of that, right? Sure. People that are making major purchases, but they already have this asset here. Yeah. And I thought, boy, I, I, I mean, I was in banking during the rise of HELOCs, right? Sure. In, in the late 80s and uh, early 90s. And that, that I always joke, that's, that was the last time we had a growth category in the banking business. Right. <laughs> that's unfortunate, but true. You know, the other thing that I find kind of curious is I thought I would see more consumer brands to, to really see the embedded payments. Like, mm-hmm. where are the big corporates mm-hmm. um, that sell stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the Procter & Gamble's or the mm-hmm. Microsoft's or whatever, that the, the finance piece could be embedded, much like an Uber ride, just embedded into the purchase. And whether it's financed or the money moves, but somehow that experience is just that much better when the payment is really taken care of. Yeah, and, and maybe five, six years ago, there were a lot there of those were, here. Exactly. In, in fact, if anything, it felt like, um, you know, we'll, we'll go back to the good news, bad news, right? If you're a banker here, it maybe felt like, ooh, this is out of my realm, but that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. Because this is where the puck is going. And yeah, I, I, I took a quick lap around the massive exhibit floor here today. A lot of great looking stands, but a lot of fairly familiar names Correct. in fintech, right? It feels a little bit more like a more traditional fintech show than, than it has been in the past? I would agree. I, I've seen a few more, I would say, in the in, certainly in the Bitcoin space and the banking as a service. There's sprinkling sure. dot, dot the line. Um, and I don't know if it's just an illusion this year that it, the, the conference even seems bigger. Maybe the booths are spread out more or something, yeah. but I have never seen this conference get smaller. So yeah. it's still a ton of interest. Yeah, no, the, the hall's uh, big and there were like nine different lunch things. Although you had an interesting lunch today. Can you talk about that? In what? Your lunch today. Oh, in my lunch today, sure. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, get invited to a lunch with uh, Chair McWilliams, the FDIC chair. Um, and it was for uh, minority development, or uh, minority banks, as well as community development financial institutions or CDFIs. And so um, I, I give uh, Chair McWilliams really a lot of leadership credit uh, in initiating a, an equity fund for MDIs and CDFIs to promote investment in those communities um, that are generally underserved. 
And um, so anyways, it was a nice uh, lunch to touch base with her and hear from the lead uh, investors in that, which is Truist and Microsoft. And so uh, we'll see what the results of what that, that fund looks like at the end of the day and, and how to take advantage of it. Um, besides the fund, what, what other kind of activity needs to happen in that space to, to really drive that to where it needs to be in your, your estimation? You know, I think clarity from the regulators around fintech, and this also, I think, has a bit of a political flair to it. It seems like between administrations, it's either in favor or maybe out of favor. And as a result of that, we find um, the leaders at the top, the head of the FDIC or OCC and Fed, will, will have their own position. And so that little up and down in tone at the top is, is challenging when you're in it as to how you're going to be perceived uh, by, your, by your primary regulator when they show up and examine the bank. So I, I think clarity around that ultimately would be really good, consistent across all those regulatory agencies. Uh, that would really kind of set the stage, as well as, I think, set the stage for the fintechs who need to comply. Yeah, I, I mean, I think any bank CEO would agree with that statement. Is there anything particularly um, uh, true about that being a CDC? So, I mean, I, I think in the... In the people that we serve, which happen to be uh, almost somewhat vulnerable and underserved by nature, we take extra precautions to make sure the consumer protections are, the disclosures are really uh, apparent and transparent. And so in that particular space, we're very cautious and we communicate with regulators regularly on that because of the communities that we serve. But again, more and more clarity around what does it mean to make a loan on behalf of a particular fintech in, you know, in a true lender type of a situation, that clarity becomes really important because you're putting all the legal staff in place in all 50 states to make sure that you're complying. And if there is uh, more clarity around that, it makes it more efficient and effective and clear for everyone. Yeah. Well, the Media Lounge is the most <laughs> popular place in, in, the, uh, in the whole conference, I think, today. Suddenly, we're, uh, we're swamped. It was relatively quiet earlier today, so I apologize for the background noise. But, uh, no, I, I agree with you. And uh, it, 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 where's the talk these days around um, kind of lending guidelines? Because that's another thing that the banks talk about a lot. Look, we want to serve more customers, but the way we're underwritten uh, or we, we have to underwrite and the way we're examined against that underwriting isn't always consistent with the way we want to lead, um, you know, and, and provide services for our customers. Where's the conversation with that these days? Yeah, it's really, in my opinion, an interesting conversation that's taking place right now, particularly with the underlying alternative data and AI that's going into the underwriting. So, you know, opening up the black box and, you know, what's into that actual new credit underwriting for a consumer loan, let's say. So that piece of it, uh, there's, there's an organization, uh, FinReg Lab, who right. is actually doing studies on how do we not only look at the AI that's in the black box and, and test it on the front end, but then back test it to say, hey, it actually did what it said it was going to do and, and do that then continuously that this underwriting system, whatever it is, what other alternative data is being used, is actually consistent with fair lending. It is not abusive uh, in terms of UDAP. And so it's in those spaces where regulation is, is going to evolve, I think, to a more real-time type of activity, as opposed to an examiner coming in once a year or every 18 months, which is forever in the fintech world. Um, this is really going to be somewhat an embedded regulatory system in which you're, you're seeing what the data is 
daily, weekly, in terms of, of it and analyzing it. And then from there, you're making some assessment or a judgment. And that doesn't mean you're a fight with the regulators. It means having that discussion and a tweak to see what needs to happen or what anomalies are taking place. And that is just learning that's taking place as to how do we do this and do it right. And quite frankly, get to the markets that really are underserved and doing it in an appropriate manner. Well, and I think all of this is underscored by something you said a few minutes ago, is that disconnect from the leadership at the top, I think, of all the major regulators. And, you know, your bank's also a member of the Alloy Labs Alliance. I know we have conversations with the regulators, and uh, we hear from a number of your peers that frustration between, hey, we love what we're hearing from the top, but there's a major disconnect to the examiner that's coming in and, and you know, asking completely different questions, right? Yeah, and I'd have to say the other kind of nugget from the conference that I've seen so far is uh, reckless, maybe not the word, um, but the fact is, is it's everyone is saying we're real time. Uh, Our speed to market for a fintech is 10 days. Uh, You know, everything has got to be instant. And the fact is, is that the regulatory environment is not that fast and you need to do that right. Right. A mistake in that is a big mistake for your fintech and could take you out of business in a second and could take the bank out of business entirely. And so there does need to be some type of caution. I, more than anyone, would love to see real time in that, that speed really be there. But the quality, the underwriting, the due diligence also needs to be there and needs to be clear for everybody to follow. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's just continues to be an interesting time of the push-pull. And uh, I always say... By definition, regulation lags innovation, right? Yep. Um, right. The innovators come up with new things, and the regulators have to respond to that. But yeah, when the world is moving fast, it is is you know quite a governor on speed that the when the regulators can't or won't move it at right. that speed. Well, what else do you you're hoping to see here over the next couple of days? You know, um, I'm hoping to engage with a few more regulators along the way. I know that sounds a little strange, but uh, getting their insights as to what they have a take on um, is usually a good indicator or barometer as to what we might see next. Um, I would say that I got to continue to learn more and more and more about Bitcoin. I like what I see, quite frankly, um, and there's avenues in which to get in it. I still think there's a bit of a comfort level that I still have to get in that range. Yep. You know, the only other thing that I think I would like to see, there's two things on my mind. One thing that I'd like to see, and I don't see anything really around sustainability and fintech's ability within all the data that it has to really begin to dive into the question of environmental sustainability, of which I think fintech is very ripe to do so. You can really use real-time data and understand what, what the carbon count could be and what that footprint is. And so I think there's a lot to be done in that. I think there's leadership that's kind of lacking in that space. Well, I just spoke to Arno Aje of uh, BNP Paribas, and that was something he brought up. So uh, we put these interviews together. Maybe we'll do him after yours. That'll be the answer to, to your question. I'd there. like to hear it, yeah. And speaking of podcasts, um, we were just thrilled with um, Next Gen Bankers, a part of the Provoke.fm media family. Uh, how are things going on the podcast and what, what, what do we have to look forward to? What's coming up on the show? You know, the podcast is going really well, better than I thought. Um, and I love it more than I thought I would in terms of engaging with. Um, well, I yeah, think no, those, you hate to talk so much. David. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm a shy wallflower. But in, in that space, uh, what's coming up are really some new and exciting guests kind of 
I would say, breaking the mold, the going global, going really into other industries and reflection back on what financial services really needs to do to be a, a positive uh, environmental and social advocate for change. And so uh, in that space, we're going to have some good, hard-hitting questions and really understanding what does the next-gen banker really look like? What skill sets, what empathy, what strategic mindset do they need to come with in which to change the world? Well, we, we talked about disconnecting the regulators, and, and, you know, we have that inside the industry, right? I think we have a lot of leaders who, who really get the vision of, you know, not only where technology is taking, but where society is going and where social change is going, and that doesn't always trickle down all the way. So I applaud you for kind of taking that on and taking a leadership role and helping to define and create what that next-gen banker looks like. Definitely, and, and we see it coming at us fast. We see the, the next generation, as the baby boomers age out on, on the older side, this next generation is environmental sustainability and social responsibility is not an option. It is, we're going to demand this. And we're starting to see that in a younger class of regulators as well, that there is an appreciation for that. Maybe even in the Community Reinvestment Act uh, remake uh, 2.0 that we might see something in regards to climate in there as well. Yeah. Well, David, anything else we should talk about before you uh, get back to the show? So JP, there's only one thing else on my mind and this is very trivial. Blackjack? No, well, <laughs> <laughs> that did flow through. Uh, in the past at Money 2020, you would have countries like Israel and Canada here yeah. that are kind of on the cutting edge of technology and so forth. And the only presence of uh, I, I guess a of a state is Ohio. Yeah. I <laughs> so saw that. I don't know what happened between <laughs> I saw that between brief. previous years and now. But Well, this used to be the only Money 2020 oh, show. Oh, that's a good now point. Now they're doing uh, shows internationally as well. Right. So, so maybe there's less of a need to come here. But you're right. Uh, and and I, yeah, I saw that booth. They're, they're still pushing Jobs Ohio, which is great. Exactly. My, my, my home state. So, there you go. Uh, they're going good. for it. There's well, an opening. David, always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, JP, great to be with you. Thanks. Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. And I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. This new book examines the philosophy of humanity as a species and how the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. During the pandemic alone, we saw the wealth of the world's billionaires surpass $10 trillion for the first time. The richest 1% of Americans today hold more wealth than the bottom 90% and often don't pay taxes. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic in 2020. But in reality, artificial intelligence could disrupt even more jobs, up to 80% of jobs today. The new industries we're creating will ironically face labour shortages because we simply aren't training our students with the right skills today. In the first 20 years of the 21st century, we saw protests double from the 20th century averages, while attendance at these protests climbed over a thousand percent. At the heart of this is economic uncertainty about our future. And this is being amplified by the pandemics. It will be amplified by AI and automation, climate change, and of course, inequality. So how will the next 30 years play out? AI has the potential to disrupt, but also to reframe government, making big government small. Universal health care, free education, universal basic income, and massive mobilization of resources to mitigate climate change will all be part of the response needed to these seismic changes. 
the realization that humanity needs to work together may be the biggest lesson of all. In techno-socialism, we examined four possible futures, and three of those possible futures result in a chaotic and divisive world with rolling crises. But one possible future, what we call techno-socialism, makes possible an inclusive, planned and emerging society where broad prosperity is possible. The book is out for global release in November. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Technosocialism. Hey guys, I'm super excited to be joined here by Matt Waller, the head of behavioral science at Frog, which is an amazing design company that's done some work for cool banks like USAA and many others. Uh, Matt is here with me at Money 2020. He's speaking here, and we're excited to dig into some of his work as uh, an applied behavioral scientist. How are you doing today, Matt? Good. So far, so good. So far, so good. So awesome. far, so good. So you, you're very specific about doing applied mm -hmm. behavioral psychology. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, so applied behavioral science versus academic behavioral science is an important distinction in the world, right? Um, because it, it not only changes what we do, but it also changes, and I was actually talking to my team about this today, because they kept anchoring on, on academic behavioral science. They were like, well, but that's not perfectly scientific, or it has these biases. And I was like, yes. But you have to remember, we're not looking at academic behavioral science as our anchor and moving back from there. We're looking at how people do product development without us and going up from there, right? So if you think about the, the typical product development process, you know, maybe some research happens, maybe, right, if we're lucky. And then we get in a room and we do this wonderful thing called design thinking and people, you know, ideate and put things on a board and there are stickies and card sorts and all sorts of things. And then inevitably sort of like whatever the oldest, you know, most powerful white guy in the room said uh, becomes the decision. Like, that is not science. That is the opposite of science. So I'm not worried about being perfectly scientific. I'm worried about being more scientific than that. And so that's what I mean by applied behavioral science. Um, in academic behavioral science, what we are trying to do is figure out truths about humans. The outcome is knowledge. It is Gnostic in nature, right? The output of applied behavioral science is change, right? The science part takes a back seat to the behavior part. If I could snap my fingers and get people to do the thing I want to do, I would do that, right? If it was magical, I would do it. It's just magic isn't real, science is real. It just turns out that science is a better process for getting people to do something in a rigorous way than snapping your fingers. And so, um, as an example, we don't use like, in academic psychology, for example, we use P less than 0.05, right? For those of you who are not statistically inclined, P less than 0.05 means there is a 19 in 20 chance that what we observe is true, and a one in 20 chance that what we observe is not true, right? Meaning P less than 0.05, that's that 5% chance that whatever we're observing is not a real difference. I don't care if things are P less than 0.05, right? I care that things, that things work in the world. Academic science has no, um, notion of cost or benefit, as an example. We absolutely do in applied behavioral science, right? The, the example I sometimes give for, for um, quantitative researchers as I hire them onto my team is, imagine I had an intervention uh, and it was P.2, right? Once again, everybody, that means that there is, a, there is a one in five chance that it does not work. 
right? That whatever I'm observing, whatever I say it does, it doesn't actually do. Well, most statisticians would tell you that's junk. Academic scientists would tell you that's definitely junk, right? It's not anything. In applied behavioral science, I would say, well, what's the intervention? So I often tell, I tell statisticians who tell me, well, that's nothing. Okay, but let me tell you about it. It's a pill that melts on your tongue, tastes of, you know, rainbows and unicorn farts, right? <laughs> like, you know, regrows your hair, has no known side effects, tastes magical, and cures all known forms of cancer. And there's a four in five chance that it does all the things I just said. Think maybe we should keep going? Yeah. Not launch it to the world, right? We want, as we do behavioral science, we want our confidence to match our scale, right? So as we go, as we increasingly want to do something at a bigger scale, we want to be increasingly confident that it's true. But it's okay to be very not confident at early stages, right? When we're running those pilots and things. Yeah. It's okay to keep going with our magical pill that cures all known forms of cancer if there's a four in five chance it does that. We want to be 99.99999% sure when we release it to the market, but that's not about, we're not about releasing it to the market. We're just trying to decide whether we should keep going. It's a really interesting corollary to what banks experience because they have such very razor thin margins for error in what they do. They, they really can't afford to mess up. And so it's very hard for some bankers to take an iterative kind of experimental approach, especially to innovation. Um, can you talk about how you help folks kind of get over that hurdle and think in this way? For sure. And what I would say is, you know, you said banks can't, uh, can't afford to mess up. What I would say is banks can't afford not to mess up, right? Like, you can't possibly do science. If you are only doing science in which you are successful with every trial, you are doing something very wrong, right? Like, there has to be this willingness to fail. There has to be this willingness to be uncertain and to go forward in a, in a case of uncertainty. Now, you can build certainty. So when we talk about behavioral science, generally we run through at Frog, a four-part sort of process. The first is um, what we think of as behavioral strategy. And it sounds the easiest, but it's actually the hardest, um, which is figuring out what it is, what behavior we want as a result of the work that we're gonna do. I wrote a book called Start at the End for a reason, right? We wanna start with where do we wanna end up? I often say, for example, that everyone is a science fiction writer, right? If, we were, if you were satisfied, Amber, with the status quo, you wouldn't do anything because everything would remain exactly the way it is today. You wouldn't need to do anything because like, we need to change anything because everything is fine, right? No, we are interested in a world that is different, that is anti the status quo. So we have to imagine a world that doesn't yet exist, science fiction, right? A fictional universe where things are better than they are today. Yeah. And that's what behavioral strategy is really about. We use a very formal articulation with our clients, which is when population has limitations and motivation, they will behavior as measured by data. So that's a very formal, you know, and we go through each of those variables. Okay, when we talk about population, who is this for? Like, how do we drill down onto that? We talk about limitations, like what must be true for somebody to have this behavior in your world, right? Um, and that's, we have to set some things outside. Maybe I'm not in charge of getting people to download the app. Okay, so that they have the app is a limitation. Anybody that doesn't have the app, they're outside of my consideration set. Motivation, how would the person articulate what they're trying to do? Not how would we articulate what they're trying to do, but if they described to their friend, well, why'd you, if I said, why'd you do that? They'd say blank, right? So if I said, why'd you take that Uber? You'd say, cause I was trying to get somewhere. That's the motivation. It's that articulation that a user has of why something's important to them, and why they take an action. Then there's the behavior, right? What is it we actually physically, literally want people to do? And then some way of measuring that, right? What is the more formal articulation of that? Is it you know, 
if we go back to, to Uber, Uber wants people to, you know, get in a car and pay for that ride. Is that rides per minute, rides per month? Is it about dollars more than rides, right? Does it, and we get lazy all the time, right? In order to do science well, we need to be precise about the outcome that we want. We need to describe this virtual world in a fulsome way that actually allows us to do stuff in the world. And so does it matter if it's $101 rides or $100 ride, or are those the same? Let's figure that out. So that's that first step. Once we know where we want to go, we have to do a research phase. And this is the observational research phase. This is a place where we're observing the world as it exists today. And in reality, we need to kind of try and figure out two things. One, why the hell would anyone want to live in this world? This imaginary world that we've envisioned, where everybody uses your card or banks at your bank or you know, does you know, automatic deposit of their paycheck or whatever it is that you envision in the world. Well, why is that interesting to people? Like, why do they want that? And then conversely, given that it's interesting to people, why aren't we there? Like, if, you know, auto-depositing your paycheck as a behavior is intrinsically interesting to people, and we know why it's good for people in the world, and they're motivated to do it, well, why is it not just happening for everybody? Right. Those are the promoting pressures and inhibiting pressures, right? Reasons to do something, reasons not to do something, which compete. When the promoting pressures are stronger, right, we, we do the behavior. When inhibiting pressures are stronger, we don't do the behavior. And so if you think about what we're actually trying to do, what we're really trying to do is rebalance those pressures, right? We're trying to introduce new promoting pressures, right? Strengthen those promoting pressures and remove inhibiting pressures to make it so that the, the promoting pressures can win and the behavior wins out. Once we've done that research, then we need to go do a design phase. This is a little different, different than you sometimes typically think of design. We talked earlier about the, the foibles of design thinking where you know, the richest, whitest guy in the room comes up with an idea and that's what we kind of go with. This is design that is expressly connected to the insights that we just had in the previous phase. Where when we talked about the promoting and inhibiting pressures, you know, if Amber suggests, well, I think, you know, in order to get people to auto deposit their paychecks, you know, we should give them a reward. Why? Well, okay, in our research, we heard about the promoting, the importance of rewards and promote as a promoting pressure. That's I'm suggesting it because it comes directly from the pressures. If you suggest something to me and you can't tell me how it increases promoting pressure or decreases inhibiting pressure, we're not going to do that, right? Like that doesn't go on the board. It only goes on the board if you can tell me how it's connected to what we know from before and how it arrives at the imaginary world we want to go to. So now we've articulated the world we want. We've understood the world that we have. We've talked about what might bridge the two, then we need to test that, right? We have to build some sort of pilot. That's the other half of science. There's observational science, but then there's experimental science. We have to run experiments that they're validations of the direction we're going. They're not, to be clear, um, feasibility validations. It's not like, could we do this or are we doing it in the right That's way? That's where so many people get stuck to when you're looking at feasibility, viability, desirability we over-index on the feasibility part and oftentimes completely ignore the desirability. 100%. We were actually talking about this on my team today. I force people on my team to, every time they try and go there, I'm like, no, no, remember, you're, you're magic. You can snap your fingers and this will be true, right? Don't worry about how we're going to make it true yet. Got Just it. snap your fingers okay. and it's true, right? It's only at the very end, once we've even proved that this is the right direction to be going, because why would you care about feasibility, like, at the beginning, right? Feasibility is totally irrelevant if this is, like, Something no one wants. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there are many infeasible things that are also not desirable. Let's figure out whether it like actually results in, you know, I don't love the desirability, feasibility uh, 
I don't love desirability as a way of talking about it because it implies that it's only about promoting pressures and there's inhibiting pressures in there too. Got it. Okay. Right. But we should understand whether something actually gets people closer to the imaginary future that I want before we figure out like, well, how do I actually make that bridge? So let me give you an example actually of what that means in piloting for us. So when I was at Clover Health, for example, um, one of the things that I was the chief behavioral officer before I came to Frog, I was the chief behavioral officer at Clover Health, went public last year. Um, one of the things that's really valuable to an MA plan is new members, right? New members are worth a lot of money, right? Like you got to grow. Um, and one, so one of the things that one of the behaviors that we wanted was for existing members to onboard new members, bring them into the plan. And so we went out in the world. You know, we want a world where, you know, if we're articulating the world that we want, we want members to talk to their friends about Clover. Okay. Right? That's what we want. We want people to onboard people into Clover. Okay, well, why would anyone want to do that? Why don't they do it? We, look at, we always look at five key groups. Always, never, sometimes, started, stopped. So everybody in the world fits into one of those groups. They either always recommend Clover, never recommend Clover, sometimes recommend Clover, didn't used to recommend Clover, but recently started, or used to recommend Clover, but recently stopped. And so as we go do research, and by research I mean quantitative and qualitative, right? We're not just looking at data, we're also going out and looking at those people, and vice versa. We're not just doing user research, we're also making sure that we get quantitative cross-validation so that we can believe in those things, right? We want a table with legs that are spread apart, right? If you just rely on quant or you just rely on qual, that's a very tippy table, right? Like, you know, put, all your, put all your legs on one side, it doesn't matter how many legs you have, it'll still fall over. And so... Once we understand, you know, the always, never, sometimes, start, stop, well, we figured out one of the problems for the people in the, one of the differences between the always and the never is how organically Clover played into their life. So if you had a lot of interactions with Clover, it was an organic part of your life that would come up in conversation. So let's pretend Amber and I are best friends. We're best friends. Clearly. If Clover, like, <laughs> comes up, we're going to be best friends after this interview, right? Like... <laughs> You know, Clover comes up naturally in my conversation if I'm engaging with them a lot. But otherwise, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about. Like, unless Amber says, well, what's your health insurance? I need a health insurance. What's your health insurance company? I'm never like, all right, Amber, let's talk about <laughs> health insurance. You know. As we do every Tuesday over every coffee. Every Tuesday over coffee. But what do we talk about on Tuesday over coffee? What are you going to do this weekend? Mm -hmm. That's a very natural conversation. Right? So as we understand, hey, it needs to fit naturally in a conversation, we need to come up with interventions. Okay. I need to find a way to increase the natural frequency at which it comes up in conversation. So a pilot, right, new members are worth a lot of money. Clover's a public company. It's got money. So when it costs something, it's going to do it big and it's going to do it real. But in the pilot, we're just doing the validating the direction. Mm -hmm. So what we figured out was, well, hey, if I know that Amber and I are going to talk about what are you going to do this, you know, what are you going to do this weekend, I need to get into that conversation. Clover needs to feature into your weekend plans. So how do I get Clover to feature into your weekend plans? Well, we run a pilot. We send 100 users some tickets, right? We say, hey, you know what? We've rented a bar. We've got a local band. We've got food. We've got booze. Here's your ticket. One for you and one for a friend, right? Got it. That's not how Clover's actually going to do it at scale. At scale, they're going to, like, you know, rent out a stadium and get a really big, well-known person, you know, get Smokey Robinson to do a concert, right? Something really relevant to that generation that would be a really premium ticket that they would be really excited about. But I don't need to book Smokey Robinson to do a pilot, and get a local bar and a local band, right? Send out some tickets. And it turns out, hey, you know what? When you send out tickets to bars, people come. And they bring their friends. Because when we sat down for our Tuesday coffee that apparently Amber and I always have, you know, Amber's like, what are you doing this again? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to this event. Like, whoa, you know, where'd you get these tickets? Oh, my insurance company sent them to me. Well, now we're talking about Clover. 
That's a really great example because people don't like to talk about banking. It's not one of those hot topics that you're just dying to talk about. And it's also an area where these are really sensitive discussions too. Mm -hmm. So driving people to talk about their bank is is pretty difficult, similar to healthcare, I would imagine. Well, and a lot of times banks are banks don't bring me a lot of joy, right? They are the the removal of some inhibiting pressure to something that I want to do, like a like a uh, like an Uber or something. You know, they they they. The re they reduce the complexity to some other alternative goal. But there is an opportunity for them to create real value um, in ways, by the way, that are enhancing to them. So it boggles my mind, for example, any consumer bank in America, let's just pretend that 50% of their 50% of their um, members are women, right? And let's just in general say that they employ, you know, that, they, that, they, that their members are generally employed. So 50% of people are employed women. Well, guess what? Women are underpaid in the United States. 20 cents on the dollar for white women, you know, 30 to 40 cents on the dollar for black women, like 50 cents on the dollar for Hispanic women, right? What that implies is, hey, if I can get Amber paid fairly, I would get 10% more overall revenue, right? 10% of the dollars that throw through my bank yeah. are attributable to the fact that Amber is not paid fairly. That's crazy. Why aren't banks helping people get raises, right? That's something I tell my, if my bank came around and was like, hey, Amber, you know what? We're going to help you get a raise. We're going to help you write the letter. And it doesn't have to be that hard, right? I think Often banks talk themselves out of doing things because they seem too hard or too difficult or they think, I don't have permission to play there. I absolutely think you have permission to play there, but you have to do it in the right way. And that's what that, you know, that's why you do behavioral science. It's finding that place. You know, once you figure out, hey, I'm going to get Amber to, to ask for a raise. Well, who always asks for a raise? Who never asks for a raise? Who sometimes asks for a raise? Who started asking for a raise? Who stopped asking for a raise? What can I learn from them? What can I build? Like, you know, I, I, I'm passionate about this one because, you know, we built a, a small side project that has helped women earn $4 billion in raises just by generating a letter that helps them ask for a raise in a really, you know, sort of logical, data-driven way. It's very successful. It's very easy to do. It takes about five minutes. We coded it in like a weekend. These things don't have to be hard. I think banks always think too big first. They start at these, you know, multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar initiatives that are going to take years, et cetera. I'm often mad at user researchers because I think, um, you know, so often I talk to banks and they're like, well, our user research team, you know, is coming back with a report on this in six months. Six months? What are you doing for six months? Right? The average engagement, right? Those four phases I talked about, you know, at Frog, we're doing that in 14 weeks. You know, that's like a three-month thing. From the moment you tell us what behavior you want to change to having run pilots that validate that those behaviors are changeable, it's three months. What are you doing for half a year? I just don't understand the timeline on which people are, are, are expressing things. And I think that has to go back to that certainty piece. If what you want is 100% confidence, you're right, that takes a lot of time and a lot of careful planning. But we don't actually need that in business. We just need to be right enough. Yeah. Speaking of women, they are they are better at innovating. Uh, we've seen it time and time again in the research that firms that hire women are earn more revenue from specifically innovation and new products and things like that. And so, yeah, let's get more women in the C-suite. Let's do it all faster. Let's start testing things. Um, Money is interesting, too, because it has so much to do with our identity. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's something that you talk about a lot in behavioral science, that, mm -hmm. that most things exist to help us stand out or fit in. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, so I frequently say that identity, both as a promoting pressure and an inhibiting pressure, is the most powerful pressure I know. Right? If you look at 
um, you know, we have tons of research that says once you sort of satisfy your basic needs, and often even when you don't, right, as we've seen time and time again in America, you can be starving and still make identity-related purchases, right? You cannot have a place to stay and still make identity-related purchases because identity is that core and that important to us. Um, so it's one of the most powerful pressures I know. And as you pointed out, there, there is a competition there. All of us want to be special snowflakes, right? We want to be unique people. But we also need to fit in. We need to have a tribe. We need to feel like we belong, right? And so we have this sort of snowflake in a blizzard problem, right, where we constantly need to help people feel, you know, individually cared for, unique, special, and also help them find a tribe, help them feel like they're part of a group, help them feel like they're part of a, you know, part of a larger whole. And I think resolving that is really, really important. And, and you know, again, it is often counterintuitive and it and it depends on parts of our identity that may not be readily accessible one of the, my favorite examples is is you know I often, there was a great study out of stanford done by hazel marcus and some others about you know sort of car purchasing so amber if you if i gave you unlimited budget you can purchase any car you want right but it only can be spent on a car you can only buy a car what would you buy tesla tesla what color Orange. Orange. Okay, we have a bright orange Tesla. <laughs> you can't all see it, but Amber's wearing bright orange pants. So this is not at all. Right? So Amber saves and saves and saves and saves and saves. Buys her bright orange Tesla. Drives it home. Parks it in the driveway, not in the garage. Obviously, we want to show this thing off, right? <laughs> parks it in front of her house. Goes in. She has, like, the best night of her life. She's, like, partying with her friends. She feels good. She got her Tesla dream car, you know, blah, 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 blah. She goes to sleep. She wakes up in the morning. Still jazz. Still the best day. Puts on her robe. Gets her coffee. Goes downstairs. Like, Gets her paper, still jazzed about her orange Tesla, gazes lovingly at her orange Tesla as the sun comes up and turns it into molten fire. Handing quite a picture. Yeah, I yeah. know, exactly. Like, but here's the thing we didn't know about Amber. She lives next door to her best friend, Matt, because we're best friends, remember? Yes. Right? So, lives next door to her best friend, Matt. And so as she looks over her now molten flame uh, uh, orange Tesla, what is parked in Matt's driveway but an orange Tesla? How do you feel? Well, most people that are listening to this podcast will probably say, you mother... <laughs> right? They're so angry. You might bleep that part out. Stole later. my thunder, yeah. Uh, you, you might, you know, exactly, you stole my thunder. You stole my uniqueness. I'm so angry. But it turns out that's actually predictably different based on your socioeconomic status. So if your socioeconomic status is, you know, for those that don't know, socioeconomic status is sort of a gestalt of, you know, how much money you have and education and social standing and race and gender and all sorts of other things mixed up into sort of one generalized thing. Lower SES people say, well, that's awesome. We'll start a card club. We'll get our other friends to buy orange Teslas. We'll, like, drive around on Friday night, and we'll be, like, the orange Tesla crew, right? We'll, like, get this done. So, below SES people are overjoyed. They're saying, that's awesome, Matt got an orange Tesla. Now Amber and Matt can convince their, son, their friend Rob to, like, also get an orange Tesla, and we'll drive around on Friday nights. We'll be, like, the orange Tesla car club. Like, we'll cruise around, right? Why? Well, because if you're high SES... You already fit in. Everyone wants to be you, right? The dominant problem of your life is being unique, feeling special, right? That's why at the beginning of COVID, what did rich people sit around and do? Buy diamonds. Like, they bought jewels. There are great stories about how at the early part of COVID, the, you know, rich people were making sort of like bizarre, crazy, luxurious purchases because they had nothing to do but try and celebrate their individual identity. And all of the ways that they had been celebrating their individual identity were taken away from them. So they just made all these crazy purchases, right? If you're at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid, 
you already feel like you stand out. You already feel special and unique. The hard part of your life is fitting in, mm. right? Feeling like you found a group, feeling like you found a tribe, feeling like you have an opportunity to be around people that are like you and that you that you can feel accepted by. And so your responses to those things matter a lot. This is the kind of reason that we have to do that kind of depth of research. We have to understand, well, who, am, what population am I trying to get to do this behavior? How are these pressures different for that population than for another population, right? What behavioral science does is give us behavior as an outcome, right? Always bringing us back to that, like, hey, it's not attitudinal. I don't want to talk about CSAT, right? I don't want to talk about NPS. I don't want to talk about attitudinal measures. I want to talk about what physically, literally, what are you trying to get somebody to do in the world and who is it, right? And then that's science-based process. There's a rigorous way to go about doing that. We don't just have to go do, you know, sort of, insights reports where I bring back a PowerPoint and then we can figure out how to like bridge from that into something that we actually build. No, there's a, there's a coordinated, cohesive process. And honestly, it's interesting. You know, we spend more time at Frog teaching this process than we do building things. I'm working with a, a pharmaceutical client at the moment. And, you know, within, we, we did a behavioral science project together that's scoped at something like 12 or 14 weeks. Six weeks in, they said, we want to hire two of our own. Can you help us hire two of our own? Like help us write a JD. Like 12 weeks in, they're like showing us off to every other group inside of this organization. They're like, hey, can we get like, let's let everybody do that. And that's what we want, right? Frog has always wanted to be at the tip of the spear. It's wanted to push the boundaries of what design could be and do, what behavior change could be and do. So I think it's the hallmark of a good company not to want to keep that back, but to want to spread it. I want everybody to be doing behavioral science so that I can continually focus on doing, you know, the next harder version of that. I can come up with a better behavioral statement or the better process refinement. I want to be at the bleeding edge. We want everybody to be doing this process. Too often innovation groups, um, you know, they want to build a moat around themselves, themselves to make sure that they, that they exist in the future. They want to say, like, we're going to stake out this territory. No, give it away. You should be giving it away. Like, you should hope that the janitor is doing innovation, right? Yeah. I want the janitor to be doing behavioral science. I want the janitor to be going, hey, I want people to not throw shit on the ground. <laughs> like, let's run some experiments. Why yeah. do people throw things on the ground? Could I move a trash can over here? Like, I want that at every level of the organization because that's what really propels change, right? You talked earlier about how, and we do have abundant evidence, that, that female leaders are often much better than, than male-identifying leaders at at you know, sort of innovation. One of the reasons for that is their desire to democratize things. They don't want to hold things back. They don't want to be the special snowflake. They want everybody to do that thing because they're confident in their ability to continue to push, right? To continue to do that next piece, right? It's a sign of confidence in yourself that, that you want to spread knowledge because it frees you up to do ever increasing awesome work. And that's something we all should aspire to. You're here at the conference talking a little bit about payments, mm -hmm. and I want to go back to Uber. We were talking about Uber earlier. I know that you studied them a lot and have, have done a lot of research about them for your book. Something interesting was when Uber launched, I don't think most people were using electronic payment methods. How, so they had a huge hurdle to get people to adopt this new payment method, which is something that we're still struggling with today with real-time payments coming down the pike and everything else. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how banks might start to make those shifts based on what you learned? Sure, and, and I, I think it's important to caveat, you know, Uber is a useful example, but this is not an endorsement of Uber. You know, Travis... Uh, uh, huge amounts of sexism happened in the early, middle, and late stages of that company. I hope Travis loses all of his money, right? Like, if you are you are responsible for the sexism that happens on your watch, particularly as a white male leader. And so, you know, despite the fact that I talk about Uber as a good example, it's not an endorsement of them as a company by any shape of the imagination. 
You're absolutely right. In the early days, you know, something like 12% of adult Americans didn't have an electronic form of payment. So if you sort of think about the limitation, right, going back to the behavioral statement, right, there are limitations. One of the limitations was you must have an electronic form of payment. That is such a big hurdle that in some other countries, that's not true. In order to get into some markets, Uber and Uber-like companies have had to accept cash. I gave a talk in, in Ukraine, and I got in the car. They you know, drove me to whatever venue where I was supposed to speak, and he says, you pay me now. I'm like, I don't understand. What do you mean? And it turns out that electronic penetration was not high enough that the majority of transactions, even in Ubers, were being conducted in cash. Really? Um, and India is another market where you, where you can sort of pay for, pay for ride sharing with cash. You know, we have to remove those limitations sensitive to the market, right? And there is a little bit of a science to that. It, you know, there is, you have to make a stand at times to say, well, no, in the U.S., I'm really going to, I'm going to stick with electronic forms of payment, right? I really, you know, whereas in another market, I don't have the penetration for that. I need to be willing to relax that limitation, right? Your ability to hold firm on your limitations depends a little bit on your market position in that particular market. When we go back to sort of, you know, when you think about who doesn't have electronic payments in the United States, I think there's often a, uh, a predictable bias that emerges. And it's interesting, this is a predictable bias that emerges across lots of categories. So I've shown in my lab that if I say, Amber, get people to use electronic forms of payment, electric, electronic forms of payment more, you will automatically gravitate towards promoting pressure. Well, they must be insufficiently motivated. I need to convince them that it's worth doing, right? And that's holds to be true across every time. And if I say get eat, eat, get people to eat more M&Ms, you'll gravitate towards promotions about eating M&M. Well, the whole reason that we draw out a promoting pressure and an inhibiting pressure arrow is to remind us to focus on the other side. Why aren't you eating M&Ms right now? Because they're not here, right? Because it wouldn't be appropriate in this interview. It's not because of a lack of promoting pressure. They're still delicious and colorful and wonderful in all the normal ways that they were. It's just they're strong inhibiting pressures. I think we make this assumption all the time that, well, people who don't have electronic forms of payment are insufficiently motivated by electronic payment. Maybe, but probably not. Probably there are very real barriers to doing that, right? I think uh, there is a huge and massive opportunity uh, in the United States around undocumented uh, uh, people who are here, right, that banks totally ignore. You know, we have, Freddie Mac and others have released all sorts of kinds of mortgage products that are supportive of the fact that we have many different kinds of people in America who are Americans. Banks have done virtually nothing, right, to reach out to those, or to, to, to those populations and make sure that they have an opportunity to become banks. They instead rely on what I consider to be the very lazy excuse, which is, eh, those people are just insufficiently motivated. Really? Is your, are you laboring under the assumption that, you know, those people just none of them magically want to own homes? None of them. That's just none of them have an important goal. That's crazy. What an insane thing to assume. And that's what I love about science, is it challenges our assumptions. When we say, when you draw an up arrow and a down arrow, and you start populating them, and you realize everything you know is on the bottom side, and you don't know anything about the inhibiting pressures, that's a signal and a sign that causes you to reevaluate. The reason we use a rigorous scientific process is because it forces us to reevaluate our assumptions, to challenge those assumptions at every turn. And that's what we want. We want a world where we are fulsomely, where we are unwilling to say, eh, it's just because people are insufficiently motivated. And instead interrogate, hey, maybe it's just hard to do. So this all sounds like a lot of work, Matt. <laughs> You're asking people to do a lot of thinking. So for, particularly for financial services, where this is not you know, necessarily innate, this design thinking, human-centered design mode, 
Why is it so important for financial services leaders to use behavioral science? Because, I mean, it goes back to that assumption that we just talked about, right? You're right. It is a lot of thinking. When I gathered my team at Clover, you know, when I went from being, you know, sort of the, the sort of subject matter expert on behavioral science to, to building the behavioral science team, they gave me lots of budget and things. And yet I hired a bunch of internal people and everyone was very surprised, right? I got people from customer service and other places. And so I encourage a very transparent culture on my team. So we had our first team meeting and uh, one of the young women who was coming from customer service said, okay, I have a question, which is why us, right? I look around this table, it's like, dominantly like women of color, like we're from all different parts of the organization. None of us are what we would think of as behavioral scientists, why us? And I handed around this survey, the survey that I love called the need for cognition. It's a lovely validated scientific measure. And it basically asks you questions about how much you like thinking. And one of the reasons I love it is it's hard. There's a lot of measures where it's like, you know, when people do these, these things that are not scientifically validated, like, you know, sort of, you know, I'm a blue, you know, I'm a, I'm a pur purple Kiwi, right? Like, you know, those sorts of things that, are, that aren't really based on anything. There's kind of a right way to answer. I know I want to be a purple Kiwi, and so I'm sort of filling it out to be a purple Kiwi. The great thing about need for cognition is, it has questions that genuinely not everyone would say yes to. An example item is like, I want everything in my life to be a puzzle. Well, not everybody feels that way, and it's totally reasonable to not feel that way, right? But they all filled it out, and they were like, okay, we get it now because they all had off-the-charts need for cognition, right? Inside of your organization and financial services are a bunch of people with really high need for cognition that you are not letting them exercise. You've beat that out of them, right? It's sort of like education, right? Kids in kindergarten are so curious. And then as we move them through the educational pathway and we addict them to grades and we put in limitations and we, and we tell them to perform in a particular way, they lose some of that curiosity over time because we beat it out of them. Same thing happens in, in, in FinServe, I think. I see lots of young people in FinServe who are so engaged and so passionate and so interested and so curious. And then just the grind of, you can't do that and we've tried that before and no, 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 and here's all the reasons. Like, it just grinds it out of people. And so I think behavioral science in many ways is a, is a calling towards yes. It's an opportunity to rather than just saying, based on no evidence, that something can't work, saying, all behaviors can be changed. Give it enough time and enough money, I can change any behavior, right? Now, some are harder, so it might take a lot of time and a lot of energy, but they're all changeable. Putting everything on the table like that and then saying, okay, great, we have a systematic way of, of, of interrogating those is key. It's actually how I ended up, funnily enough, in behavioral science. So I was uh, a freshman in college, and I took this intro psych class, which was very bad. Uh, and it was taught by a guy who's a fantastic researcher, not a great teacher. But I, I lucked into taking another psych class, which was taught by a fantastic guy. And so it's my freshman year. I'd taken this really bad intro psych class. Great guy, bad teacher, right? Great researcher, bad teacher. But I took a second psych class with a fantastic teacher. And we read a paper. And it wasn't that I disagreed with the data, but I felt like they were overreaching the support of the data in support of the conclusion. The conclusion didn't feel backed up by data to me. And the professor, whose guy I should shout out, Andrew Ward at Swarthmore College, still teaches there, fantastic guy, said possibly one of the most life-changing things to me, which is the field agrees with this interpretation, right? The field agrees with this interpretation, but this is science. And so 
there is an orderly way for you to respond, which is by running your own test, right, and demonstrating, creating evidence or uh, 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 uncovering evidence that suggests an alternative explanation. And if you want to come to my lab and do that, you're welcome to, and I would support you in that, right? That's what, can you imagine that attitude inside of Finzer? Instead, in, instead of the youngest, brightest, most ambitious, engaged people that we have, instead of saying, no, no, we've tried that and it's not possible, we said, let's find out, right? And I think what you would discover is, you know, we often associate innovation with the young and, you know, and the, the jean-wearing, blazer-wearing guy with the, you know, there's a look to it, right? A Silicon Valley look we associate with. I would, um, I would bet that if you unlocked yes and you said, hey, there's a scientific way we can engage in this, you would find some of your oldest, some of the people that you would least predict would be, in air quotes, innovative, actually have tons of desire and pent up sort of, you know, energy and curiosity that's just been waiting for an outlet. And your job as a leader is to create an orderly way to do that. And that's what behavioral science does. It's teaching a skill set that lets the janitor, the line level banker, be curious and, and, you know, really do something with that curiosity instead of just have to sit with it all the time. Because, you know, you sit with it, it just spoils, it curdles, right? Curiosity is meant to be explored. And what behavioral science does is create an, a structured opportunity for that exploration. Perfect. Matt, this has been mind-blowing. Love it. Where can people find you? Uh, I'm really easy to find. So they can find me at Frog, right? We have tons of, we do lots of work with, with folks in, in the financial services uh, industry. And again, you know, for us, it's, um, we love these sort of, you know, engagements that allow us to bring our partners along on that journey so that we can always be pushing forward together. I will, you know, you send me an email, I will give a lunchtime talk to your team on behavioral science. Uh, no, no problem. Very happy to do it. You know, and uh, you can find me on Twitter. You know, it's just my name. I'm Matt at MattWaller.com. I have open office hours, right? Um, I try and lower those inhibiting pressures to getting to me to make it really easy because, you know, the world of missionaries and mercenaries, you know, I'm, I'm a missionary about behavioral science. I truly and genuinely believe that if everyone centralizes behavior in their work and, and then pursues the change of behavior through through science, that we can create a much better and more optimal world than we, than we have today. A world in which women are paid fairly, right? And their bank has a vested interest in that. A world in which the uh, unbanked aren't viewed as lazy, right? But rather seen as, as people who, 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 whose inhibiting pressures need to be reduced, right? A place where, you know, undocumented workers and, and other kinds of, of Americans have every opportunity. Like, those are the outcomes that we want, and those are the things that science can drive because it inherently helps us reduce those biases. So, you know, if, if you're on board with that, like, come find me and I will fight with you. And if you're not on board with that, if you think that your business model is predicated on maintaining uh, the status quo, which I think, I think there are banks who are invested in the status quo, then you should know that there are those of us like me who are out there. And, you know, we're better at this than you are, and we will eventually win. It might take a long time. It might take a lot of energy. But remember, I said all behaviors are on the table for change. Thank and I think, you. you know, the, the curve of humans bends up and to the right, and we know this. And so I think um, it, it is simultaneously a message of hope for a particular kind of bank and a warning to another kind of bank that you, if you continue to believe that you can maintain superiority through a status quo model, I'm here to tell you that's not going to happen. Stay curious, change behavior, change the world. 
Are you ready to go grab coffee and our orange Teslas? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, I need pants that go along with it, though. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much again, Matt. Great Thanks having you. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.